Hey, welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality with Sydney DeLorean. That's me, and I have hashtag fan favorite Rob Love here. Uh, how's it going, Rob? It's going pretty good, Sydney. That's right. Hashtag fan favorite here with another juicy, gossip-filled episode. Uh, it's going to be good. I like this. I like this topic. Well, um, your name's you involved to... in it a lot, so I'm that, sure you like that. That is true. Yeah, we're today we're doing the Love Family, which I don't know why we haven't done this before, but it's another sort of local, you know, Seattle area cult. Um, and it's it's pretty it's pretty great. It's my favorite cult so far. I want to say. Well, not I, and beside, n- not I, just because it shares my name. <laughs> I'll tell you this: it took me a while to get to any dirt on them, so that's kind of impressive. Because most cults, the juicy parts le- are in the forefront. Um, and uh, yeah, this was not that. So, um. It, uh, on the surface, they seem pretty chill and hippie-ish, and then there's some dirt. So I don't know. How do we want to format this? How do we? Where do we want to start? Well, I think what from what I I mean chronologically is always good, but like bat, the furthest back I could find was well, I mean, so this guy, <clears throat> and I don't have all my notes with me either, or I have a page of notes, but um, I don't have. There's a lot of stuff and names and stuff like that. I have a timeline so, but the in guy, front of me. So. Okay. Well, let's start with his the, guy, the real guy. Love Israel was born in 1940 in Germany. And then after the war, his family moved to, I think, I think they moved to Seattle. They did. Um, yes, his mother yeah. was American. Wait, I'm trying to remember. His mother was American and his dad was German or vice versa. But one of his parents was American. The other one was German. And um, he was born in Germany uh, and they mo- in 1940. And then in 1947, the family moved to Seattle, Washington. Okay. So that yeah. sounds good. And uh, his his actual name was what? Uh, Ein. Uh, this is terrible. Paul, Paul uh, what was Erdman? Paul Erdman, right? Right. Okay. And um, so yeah, he was like. It turns out he was initially not super into the flower child movement. He was not. He just was like, Ugh, "What's happening with these weirdos?" Um, but he took a trip to San Francisco kind of dug the hate ashbury thing and then he ended up doing um some acid with uh, uh what's his name he was uh the steve, original host <clears throat> of the Bri- tonight show's son right steve allen is the name of the dad of um brian allen who was the guy that um uh Erd- erdman did Paul Erdman did acid with in San Francisco. And uh, this was in like 1968, I want to say. Yeah, sometime so around right in the, there. Right in the peak of the whole, um, you know, hippie flower child hate Ashbury thing. And um, so the, the story goes that they dropped acid. Brian Allen, Steve Allen's son, and this Paul Erdman guy... Dr- dropped acid and then sat cross-legged 
facing each other with like their knees touching and just stared at each like looked each other in the eye and just kind of went from there and at some point they started they started saying we are one um love love is the love is the answer is that right well there were like three tenant chants that the family ended up having that were kind of popular um sayings of the day uh and i think i think that acid trip was the one where where they were like we are one and they kept they just started saying it repeating it back to each other while looking each other in the eye we are one we are one and that kind of started the whole thing yeah, Erdman claimed he saw Jesus in Brian Allen's eyes, and I have a quote from him. Uh, he said, I saw love, I saw forgiveness, I saw a million symbols, I, all in a second. Um, and Allen ended up spending uh, almost a decade with the Love family as it evolved. So they they were pretty tight, I guess. Yeah, he stuck around for a while, um, Brian Brian Allen did. Um, but so if let's, let's not get too far ahead because I think if we go incrementally, he hasn't to, you know, where he changes his name and whatever. So, um, so that's the first recorded whatever meeting between those two. Um, and and then, then at some, he goes yeah. back to Seattle and right. yeah. he has this lady he's seeing who later I believe becomes his wife. Um, and they, her name is Marilyn and they moved into a rental property in, near downtown Seattle. And then within a few days, another couple named Clinton Rosemary moved in and they're with their son, Eric, and then also a Vietnam veteran, Neil moved in. And apparently within a year they had all switched, like they all swapped who they were fucking. Um, so, you know, this is. It, it didn't take long from his first acid trip to him being in a weird polyamorous group living situation. Yeah, it was just it was just him and six other people or five other people, something like there was like six or seven people. Yeah, it was a small it was first. a small group. And uh they were yeah, they were living in the Queen Queen Anne Hill neighborhood um of Seattle and um which was kind of run down at the time. Seattle was going through a bit of a like an economic downturn. Um, this is before Microsoft. This is before Amazon. This is before Starbucks. All we had was Boeing back then. Uh, and okay. so, you know, you lose a you lose a government contract or two, and all of a sudden, half of the town is laid off of work. You know, yeah. There was a there was an advertising campaign around this time, um, or I don't know if it was an advertising campaign, but anyway, it was like a sort of an inside joke with Seattleites with the last one leaving Seattle please turn the lights off uh, and I want to say there was like a, there was like a billboard that said that or something like that <clears throat> so it was a real kind of recession local recession so at that time Queen Anne Hill was kind of run down kind of slummy affordable um, Affordable is what, yeah, how we would <laughs> interpret that. <laughs> it's how people like us would have refer to it. What an affordable yeah. neighborhood. An affordable. So they were all kind of shacking up there. And then one morning, I guess uh, Paul Erdman in one of their little group kind of get-togethers 
announced to everyone that he had a vision from God and that he was changing his name to Love Israel, mm-hmm. which is sort of a play on words, like love is real. So um, so he, he announced that. Everyone started calling him by that new name. And over time, he encouraged the other members of their little <clears throat> coffee clatch to um, to change their names as well, and so eventually they all adopted the last the, the surname Israel, and then they were given by the group, um, sort of consensus, I guess. But they would they would be given a virtue name, which was you know to go along with love Israel. There were, for instance, um, Brian Allen uh, was given the name Logic Israel. And uh, and so on and so forth. So it gets a little confusing with the weird names. A but, lot of hope, but that's charity, it, justice, determination, that sort of thing. Yep. Yep. Which isn't Strength, that weird ser- for this time period? Weren't a lot of flower children into changing their names? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think I think yeah, hippie name. Now, I mean, people have their um, their like Burning Man names, right? <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know anything about that. But, um, I mean, people change their names. You know, in the 90s, everyone had their screen name as their, like, sort of alter ego. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I I know a lot of people who've legally changed their names, myself included. So uh, it doesn't seem super weird to me, but I imagine at the time, especially because they're not changing their name, like, oh, I always hated being Eunice. I'm changing my name to Maggie. They're like changing their name from a traditional name to a a virtue. Yeah, and they weren't all virtue names. Some of them were biblical names because they were. Uh, you mentioned Jesus before. They they were basically a Christian uh, based cult. Yeah. So they would get together, which is really and, interesting. And so, right. Well, I mean, that was kind of like my aunt. I had aunts that were, you know kind of young adults around that time and they were real like one of them still real real churchy not churchy but like christy okay. <laughs> you know what i mean not churchy, so i think christy. that was i think it was a common thing back then for hippies to like get into you know like jesus's love and all that like there was there was a a lot of christian sentiment um during that era, I think. At least that wasn't, it wasn't completely unheard of or No, anything. no. And I, a lot of their mantras remind me of the Dr. Bronner's guy, like the all one. And Dude, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, his, this guy, Paul Erdman, that, that acid trip where God told him to change his name, he might as well have just been staring at a Dr. Bronner's bottle of, of soap. You know what I mean? Like that's basically his whole uh whatever theme thema anathema whatever his ethos yeah and if i guess if no one if anyone has not seen um the documentary dr bronner's magical soapbox i cannot recommend it enough it's very interesting um and dr bronner's makes really good soap but if you read the label it's kind of like some crazy ramblings and he was also german born i believe oh really Mm-hmm. Interesting. I believe Dr. Bronner was German-born. 
Okay. So yeah. So I, but anyway, not all of the um, the virtue names were virtues. Some of them were biblical characters. Um, so like, there's a Ruth because Ruth is a character in the Bible, and <clears throat> later on, there's you know other Gideon is one. But anyway, just just to clarify that not all the the names taken were were straight up virtues. Okay. But. But anyway, so let's see. Um, so, where do we go from there? I, the next, the next real big, like, step up is when the Dupont guy joins the cult. Do you want to just leap to that? Or um, I yeah, mean, it's we basically. Can do that. Ba- so he. They basically he hung, hung out. They hung out. What's that? But this guy joined the church, um, and he had a lot of money, so it helped them buy up some property. Yeah, they were all, at this point, they had like, um, you know, the cult had grown over these few years before they got that massive infusion of wealth, which kind of reminds me of um, Starvation Heights when um, Claire and Dora Williamson showed up. Uh (laughs) Like, they were wealthy you know, aristocrats, you know, they didn't have jobs or anything. They just had money. And so Linda Hazard saw that and was like, woohoo, we finally made it. Well, actually, she'd already had, she'd already had that um, soup guy's mom anyway. But um, so. But uh, I And you know what? I don't know where this is in the timeline. So I want to add in 1971, they wrote their charter, but it was called the Church of Armageddon Charter. And oh right, they don't seem to commonly be called that anywhere. They're usually called the Love Family or the Love Israel Family, um, but apparently yeah. they were toying with the name Church of Armageddon. I think they were a little bit um, maybe touched by like the prepper attitude because I, I looked up the meaning of the word Armageddon, which I've now forgotten, but it's like a place for God's chosen people to meet at the end of the world. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. It's more about coming together. Yeah. Armageddon, I guess. And that's the, that's the name that they, that they went by was the church of the Armageddon or, you know, something like that. Um, but everyone else just called them the love family. They never called themselves that, Yeah. (laughs) but whatever. Anyway. So, um, so yeah, they, they were bumming around Queen Anne, um, over the few years while, before they got this DuPont guy to, to join their cult. Um, they had grown in number to maybe a few dozen or something. There was, they had about, I think they had like 13 or 15 different rental houses distributed around the neighborhood Mm -hmm. that they would, they would put, you know, they'd have people sleeping on the floors. So there'd be like more than a dozen people in each house. So there was, you know, probably at least a hundred people at that point. Um, and then this guy, I think he meets, I forget how they meet up with this guy. Um, but he is, his name is Daniel Gruner and he is, he's from a very wealthy family. He's, um, this family has generational wealth, meaning this Daniel Gruner guy who would go on to become his name given to him was richness Israel. <laughs> um, he, he came from a family that hadn't worked in, he was the fourth generation that hadn't held a job. So oh, his like, wow, great, that's family. Well, 
Yeah. His great-grandfather sold a patent to the DuPont family. Um, And I don't know if it just continued paying or what, or if it was just a lump sum that was enormous. But essentially, through that one business deal, whatever, his family was set up for life and then some. Uh, So he's just this sort of bored aristocratic guy he you know had sports cars and you know all the all the trappings you know he had more money than he knew what to do with but that wasn't really floating his boat so at some point he gets in i don't know how i forget how they met up um but he meets up with one of the members of the group they kind of you know tell him about it he's like oh that sounds cool goes and checks it out and he's hooked so um, so he joins the cult, and one of the stipulations, besides changing your name, um, to join the cult, you had to give up all of your personal possessions to the common good, or whatever, to the family. So this guy, you know, with all of his, multi, you know, just millions and millions of dollars basically set the cult up. And so all these um, rental properties that they'd been living in, they purchased them from the landlords they were renting from. Oh, okay. So now this so now this cult has like a good chunk of property in, you know, in Seattle and they continue to expand from there. Um, over the years they develop uh, they get what's what they refer to as the ranch which is um, north of Seattle in this town called Arlington, real rural kind of place. But they get like, I don't know, it's like 100 acres or something like that, this big property up there. Um, but in the meantime, they're, you know, like I said, they're, they're growing their cult in numbers. Um, you know, they're, they're known in the community. You know, they, the people see them at first, they're, you know, kind of like ragamuffin-looking hippies. They're, they're wearing hippie garb and wearing whatnot. Wearing homemade and clothes o- and robes. Yeah, over time, the yeah the the um, mode of dress switches to just robes. So everyone's wearing robes, and the women wear dresses. They're not allowed to wear pants. Um, it was a real patriarchal kind of mess, to be honest. But um. Yeah, like I don't know. People seem- said like the women were revered, but they were uh, given subservient roles, and it, it was decreed that women were to obey the men, and they were not appointed any sort of um, high-ranking position. For sure, yeah, <clears throat> and really, um, you know, Love Israel was the guy in charge. He was the you know he was the main guy. He had all of the decision-making power. And all of that, but he did have, he called them elders. Um, so he would delegate some responsibility to a handful of um, of members, including, uh, let's see, Logic, which is Brian Allen, Steve Allen's son. Um, he was an elder, as well as eh, this other guy, Sirius. Um, I don't know where he came in. <laughs> anyway, but so uh, so, but the the ultimate decision making um, power lied with uh, with love the whole time. So, um, let's see. Oh yeah, and then uh, one of the so they had 
these houses in Queen Anne, two of them were adjacent properties. And so once they had all this, once they were flush with cash, they um, started like building, they, they joined the two houses into one big mansion. Um, and I've seen photos of the in, inside. It was really cool. It was really cool looking. Yeah, it says they like made, they like connected the houses and there were other like little pathways and shit. It sounds really cool in the way they designed the property to make everything connect so that they could go visit each other easily. Yeah, and they just had gardens in between. Uh, you know, they if they had adjacent properties, they'd tear down the fence and just have a like a, you know, a big communal garden in between the two places or whatever. So... I don't know. Um, if you you can look up photos of that, the, you know sp- that specific mansion that um, Love lived in, and it's it's super cool. The upstairs, um, well, it's separated now. Um, once it, once the property was sold off, it was like the two units were separated somehow. Oh. So they're 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 once again they're once again separate properties, but they they have like an adjoining wall. Um, so it was kind of weird the way they, I read an article about how they had to separate it and it was, you know, it was kind of not haphazard, but like, oh, well this used to be the kitchen, but the kitchen went, you know, got separated to the other house. So now the, you know, what was the dining room is now the kitchen or, you know, stuff like that. But in the upstairs, there was this, um, it was this large living quarters, sort of the, you know, like the master bedroom, we'll call it. And it was shaped kind of like an octopus. Like there was this big open area where Love Israel and his wife or possibly wives lived. Um, and then there were all these what are what were described as cubbies, which were like small private areas off to the sides, shaped like an octopus. Just picture an octopus or okay. whatever. And... Um, you know, so these little little small bedrooms where their children would sleep, and apparently, Love Israel fathered quite a few children. Um, I and think like I said, 20, I I, I want to say okay, <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he you know he he did he did end up having three wives at some point, and I think that polygamy kind of thing was um, I don't know if it was. Well, like there were, encouraged. There were but. phases. So initially it was he was the husband with many quote unquote wives and he would loan them out to other men. So like if a high ranking official was good, he would get one of Love Israel's wives as like a here, take this one as a loner. And if that person was bad, then their wife would be revoked and sent back to be the wife of Love Israel. So women were kind of a currency earlier on. Like I said, I had to do a lot of digging to find the dirt because I read article after article and I watched documentaries. And each one had like one juicy tidbit. There wasn't one article that had all the juice. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were like phases like that where initially it was him with all the wives. Um, and then there was a phase as it moved forward, much like all of us, you know how they say people get more conservative with age. And so 
over time, um, it started to be that new members had to be celibate for a year. And then if they wanted to start a relationship, it had to be approved first by Love Israel. So okay, a lot of control over the romantic lives of people. It wasn't 100% free love, um, especially if you were a woman, you didn't have much say in it. Yeah, for sure. And also, it should be pointed out um, that they didn't agree with uh, marriage uh, as a as a thing. Like they didn't actually marry their wives, not like in an official capacity. They were all married. Yeah, everyone. They were just one big family, right? So they were already all married. And they said (laughs) their official like statement was. we're married to God first. So this earthly, like, legal marriage thing um, doesn't have any say, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we, uh, so among their major tenets, uh, we already kind of mentioned the um, we are one, love is the answer, the time is now. Those three things were basically summed up their whole philosophy, which is, you know, Dr. Bronner's style. They yeah. also they also um, gave up they didn't celebrate birthdays. They they gave up their birthdays. There was no marriage. They didn't believe in calendars or years or time. Like they didn't wear watches or anything because if someone asked them what time it was, they would say It's now the time is now. The time is now. So, um, I mean, that's kind of endearing. I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an extreme version of, because cults want to separate people from the outside world. And this is definitely a super extreme version of that um, by saying, like, yeah, you don't want to be, even be connected to time um, because. Well, because they were. They were eter- they they saw them human beings as eternal um, entities, yes. and so that's like, well, we're we're all here. We've always been here. You know, what's the point in time? You know, we're eternal. So, and then also, you're right. They did. That was another stipulation. Joining the cult, they had to each new member had to write a letter to their family, their birth family, saying essentially. Um, Thank you for all that you've done for me, but I have a new family now, and your services will no longer be needed. Yeah, exactly. So basically rebuking their their birth family in a nice way. It wasn't a fuck you or anything, but it was like, hey, I've moved on. Thanks for all your hard work. We'll catch you in eternity or whatever, you know. So, um. So where where were we before we got sidetracked there? Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, the marriage marriage stuff, right? So no one was actually married, um, and you're right. It went through phases, like that. Like you said, there was they sort of experimented with, okay, everyone's going to sleep with each other now, and then nobody's going to, you know, just whatever uh, Love Israel's whim was at the time. But eventually, you know, this cult was around for decades. Um, eventually it did sort of settle into a more traditional marriage type situation, except I guess there were still multiple wives. So however that works. Yeah. I think as he got older, he stopped fucking everybody. 
So that was good. I guess, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, oops. So. Um, so let me see. I'll go back to my timeline here. So he's um, in 19. So 1972, there were there was kind of a controversy because two of the family members died because um, they put two oh, yeah. in a bag and were huffing it. Ta- yeah. Tall. Toluene is an it's like an, it's an organic solvent and yeah I've like uh, yeah it's um I've read about I've I think I've encountered it in like a chemistry lab before so I had to read the, like the material safety data sheet on it and one of the things listed for like po- poisonous whatever um, they'll list in what way it's poisonous and it says. Uh, like can cause feelings of elation and euphoria if inhaled (laughs) for toluene. And I'm sure that's true with a lot of, you know, people huff gas, you know, it's, it's essentially like a hydrocarbon, like gasoline or something like that. Toluene. Yeah. It's in, and it says it's it's something that's found in like gasoline and I forget what else. Yes. Like paint thinner. Sure. Sure. And some of the reports said they were huffing it during an, during a family ritual because there were some family rituals that involved LSD. Um, like they'd all take it as a group and then also they would smoke weed during prayer meetings. So some of the reports said these men were putting toluene in a bag and putting it over their head to huff as a, um, ritual, but uh, some didn't say that they might've just been trying to get high. Um, right. The interesting thing was, so they died and the, um, church convinced the coroner to wait three days for an autopsy believe, uh, because, uh, love Israel said if, they were true believers. They would be resurrected. They weren't fully dead because they also believed in immortality. Um, and, uh-huh. uh, spoiler alert, they weren't um, resurrected. Um, and uh, later, another family member died in an accident on property. And same thing, they convinced the coroner to wait three days to an autopsy and at that point they started to think maybe the immortality uh promised in the bible and in their sort of doctrines isn't literal it's more of a figurative you'll live on within others not that you will literally live forever um having watched three of their friends die yeah you know i just found the name the two people that died from huffing toluene were reverence and solid solidity. Oh, solidity. yes. <laughs> reverence and solidity. Some crazy ass names. Yeah, that was in 1972. You're right. So, um, but that was that was kind of it for like for a while, as far as like darkness that was cast upon the the cult. Well, I guess, um, you know? in 1973, uh, they opened their own construction company, and part of this was from they didn't want people working. They needed money. Like their his whole thing was like live in the now, don't have any debts, whatever. Um, we can be self sustaining, but it kind of became clear that they weren't entirely self sustaining. Like they had bills, they needed money, and he didn't like the followers to have jobs in the normal world and encourage them to start businesses 
to be sustaining. And so they had, they ran several restaurants. They opened this construction company. And also in 1973, there was uh, a controversy um, because Dedication Israel, who used to be known as Kathy Crampton, was taken from the Love Israel family by her mother and deprogrammer Ted Patrick. And Ted Patrick's kind of like a famous deprogrammer who did like Hare Krishna's. And I don't know. I he I know him from our episode on cult deprogramming. Um, but they allowed the family had a TV crew like follow along in trying to deprogram this girl. So they they kidnap her. Um, like she's out for a run and they pull up in a van and two guys grab her and put her in the van. And apparently several times along the road, uh, back to, I forget where they were heading. LA, I think is where her family was from several times along the trip home. She escaped and they had to recapture her and they kept her confined and tried to deprogram her. And, um, she says eventually she just, Oh, oh, they gave up because they assumed like it's not working. Um, so she must be possessed. So they brought in an exorcist. And oh my God. She realized, like, okay, this isn't going to go away. I'm just going to do what they want me to do and then turn me loose, which is what she did. She pretended to like be exorcised and then escaped and she went back to the family. Damn straight. I mean, that sounds. I know it's a family member trying to protect their loved ones, but that's kidnapping. Exactly. Like this woman was, this woman was living in this commune of her own free will. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that that's okay to well, just go. I mean, I. <sighs> she pressed charges on Ted Patrick that ended up not being like she tried to press charges and it didn't go through. But later, Ted Ugh. Patrick was um, convicted of kidnapping and jailed. Um, I think it was a member of the Hari Krishnas, like that the family had hired him to kidnap and deprogram. So he did go to jail for kidnapping. Wow. Yeah. Wow, the, that's crazy. Like, I didn't The 70s were wild. People were cuz it's when cult deprogramming became a thing cuz I think there were a lot of little micro communes in weird situations happening all over the country and people were desperate to get their family members back. Yeah, um the disillusionment of the 1960s and the Vietnam era and everything had a lot of people searching for meaning. And um, that was just fertile ground for these little cults to pop up everywhere. Um, One of the things that affected, kind of tangentially affected um, the public's perception of cults, of course, was Jonestown. And that was right around that time. So um, that kind of put the Love family back on its heels a little bit as well, as far as like, oh, hey, they kind of launched a little bit of... um, a PR campaign to kind of get out into the community and let people know that they weren't suicidal or anything weird. Like, Hey, we're just people living a peaceful life. No, <laughs> don't freak out. You know, yeah, nothing, nothing to see here. Yeah. Which there really wasn't. I mean, they weren't negatively impacting the community. If anything, they were a positive influence um, for the most part, I would say. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, they, yeah, they weren't really hurting anybody. And I guess a lot of the neighbors didn't have a problem with them. Like, they at first were like, oh, those people are weird going for walks in their robes. And then they were like, oh, whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So, um, so what else you got after 1973? Because the next, the next real point that I have is 1983. Oh, okay. Um, when well, some, when 19- some stuff happened, but. 1974, uh, the Love Israel family members danced and sang on stage at the World's Fair in Spokane, Washington. By the way, I watched, as, there's a documentary out about the cult called It Takes a Cult, and it's not very yeah, good. Yeah, did you see it? No. Because you watched it? There's only eight minutes of it available on YouTube and 30 minutes of okay. it available on Vimeo. It's an hour and a half long. Right. But I watched the 30 minutes on Vimeo, and it... There's these bands. I mean, there. It looks fun. There's an It's your typical like hippie scene. There's a bunch of RVs and fucking yurts and shit and jam bands playing really bad music and hippies dancing uh-huh. the way hippies dance, yeah. which really got. I was dying laughing. Like Zach knew he was busy doing something, but he knew every time he heard me laugh that he had to look up and see what I was seeing because the hippie dance moves and you got a bunch of barefoot kids and you know, it's just the usual stuff. Um, so I'm picturing that musicality performing at the world's fair in Spokane. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. That's what we have to show to the world. That's what we're showing. Uh-huh. To the world. <laughs> yeah. And just grateful dead style dancing. It was just like spinning and you know, whatever yeah, flowing I, I dresses it. spinning. It was pretty awful. Um, yeah, I wasn't able to find that 90 minute doc. I mean, I, I saw that the, that documentary existed, but I wasn't able to find it. I would have even purchased it to watch it. It's just plain not available. Um, yeah. but I did watch, I watched, um, on YouTube, there was a 30 minute, interview with the maker of the documentary who was a former member of the family um who left for about a year and a half and then came back um and made that documentary he included in that 90 minutes is a lot of archival footage like you described the home movies of just the them getting funky to some awful music um, so I think the majority of that documentary is probably just home movies like that. I don't know. But this interview I, I um, watched with the maker um, was was pretty cool for, like, you know, hearing his perspective on it and everything. Um, I guess I guess he showed up with a camera. But um, all those home movies and stuff now, they weren't allowed to watch television there was no radios um they weren't allowed to read newspapers um so um but they did uh what's his name logic israel steve allen's son was given some video equipment from his dad um which he was allowed to use to take those home movies um so that's how that footage exists but um but yeah, um, I I don't know. I would love to see that movie, sort of like the full ninety minute thing. But I think you're right; it's probably just a lot of people <laughs> hippie dancing. It's really I I'm glad I was able to watch it because I was able to then kind of like put a face with these people, like visualize the scene. But it's not a well made documentary um, by any stretch of the imagination. So yeah. Yeah. Oh well. What are you gonna do? I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't <coughs> expect a lot. It. It was number one a million years ago. Like people weren't 
I don't know. It's whatever. It's it's not high quality is what I'm saying. And that's all right. Yeah. So that's the World Fair in Spokane, by the way. Spokane. What did I call it? Spokane. And then Spokane. Just like just like everyone does. Yeah, I don't I don't know anything about what it's like for you people up there. I just know it's wet. Yeah, well, it has been for the past couple of weeks. It's been awful, awful. But <clears throat> so um, do you have anything else leading up to 1983? There was a big rift yeah, in the no, family that then, occurred in 1983. So, okay, at this well, point, let's, let's jump to that. Yeah, because at this point, like drugs had always been a part of the culture of the uh, love family. But allegedly, but mostly mostly psychedelics. It was mostly psychedelics and weed. Yes. Um, part of their morning ritual, they would get together in the morning, and they would have coffee, sweetened with honey and fresh cream. They would pass the ta, which is what they called the ceremonial pipe that they would smoke marijuana from every morning. That was their ritual routine, and then they would read from the Bible. They would sing and meditate, and then discuss. So that's. That's my notes on their morning routine. But yeah, um, drugs were definitely part of it, but mostly it was marijuana and psychedelics and the occasional death related to huffing toluene. Yes. Um, But but allegedly at this point, it is the (coughs) 80s, allegedly Love Israel discovered cocaine. What? Yeah. Um, which may have had an effect on some of his behavior because it's the 80s, the era of excess, and apparently he was living pretty high on the hog, smoking expensive cigars, going out to fancy dinners, all this stuff that kind of flew in the face of their ideology of living simply, living off the land, being family-oriented at home, they're farming, they're cooking, they're living communally. All of a sudden, he's fucking... Live in a bright lights, big city, doing blow, going to hot diner, like restaurants. I don't know. So there's yeah, a- buying airplanes, buying airplanes. Yeah, oh. at one point they owned three airplanes, three and um, three airplanes because he he justified it by saying, "Well, we need to get to the ranch, which is located north of Seattle." Like I said, but it's maybe an hour's drive from Seattle. I don't think they needed a, an airplane necessarily to get, or three airplanes to get there. No. But um, apparently on one occasion, um, he took the plane, you know, took the, took one of the airplanes from Seattle and ahead of time coordinated with the people in Arlington that he wanted all of the people living there at the ranch to form a circle in the meadow of the property and wave up at the plane as it flew by. It's <laughs> just a power move. Yeah. <laughs> a straight up power move. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. It's like a Mr. Burns kind of kind of move or something. But anyway, so yes, there was tension in the family um, due to his excesses, and there's some reports that um, you know people. Some of the family members weren't receiving what they needed, that he was kind of like keeping the money for himself and yeah, spending like it on cocaine and airplanes. Shoes. Right. And people were, you know, 
not eating the greatest diets. It was mostly what they grew, like this ranch up in Arlington. They grew a lot of vegetables and stuff. So they would have like, you know, rice and, you know, vegetables for dinner. That was that was pretty much standard, you know. Um, but yeah, so tensions grew. And at some point, a couple of the elders... Um, I don't, I don't know which ones it was, but it was uh, a, a they, seven of them is all I know. Oh, okay, so they approached him and they they presented him with it was a it was on paper it was sort of like a written um like here's what we want a proposal I guess you'd call it and they. They were they in this proposal. They outlined their belief that the the family had grown beyond its original um, sort of like manageable size. Like it had gotten too big for just one person to control, and so they wanted some autonomy. Well, um, and they, they kind wanted of some deci- argued initially. Like this guy, he was older and smarter than everyone, and so they they were like, "Yeah, of course we listened to you early on, but now we have members of the community who are more knowledgeable about finance and business than you are. Yes, and maybe you should right. just be the spiritual leader, and they should take over. Correct. Um, these other avenues, and uh, yeah, he yeah, did not like that. He tore it up like Nancy Pelosi after the uh, State of the Union address. Yeah, he sure did. And um, not willing to negotiate. No. So so that caused this schism. And essentially it led to two-thirds of the followers leave, just straight up leaving um, the family. So now all of a sudden they're, they're, you know, Membership was from what it had been of over 300, sometimes approaching 400. It it immediately plummeted back down to like 100. And one of the people that left was good old richness Israel or um, what was his name? Daniel Gruner, the DuPont millionaire. So he and his wife, uh, Judy, I think her name was, left with their... Uh, I think it was two, two or three kids. I know for sure. Uh, yeah, it was two. I think Penny. Um, what was her name before? Anyway, the short of it is, <clears throat> when this millionaire guy left, he sued the family to have his property reinstated. Um, so basically, the money that paid to purchase those like fifteen houses around C- Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. Those houses were property. The ownership was reverted back to Daniel Gruner. Um, So the Love family had to move out of all of those. So at that point, they were stuck just at the ranch in Arlington. That's basically all they had. um, Which apparently was in kind of rough shape. Like it didn't have it. All the articles say it didn't have the modern conveniences, which I think means like plumbing. Because it basically was like, yeah. uh, it was a farm. It had a barn. It had a chicken coop. And they, like, converted the barn <clears throat> to a living area slash group meeting home. And the barn became an yeah. or the chicken coop became an office. And they had, like, yurts. Um, it was very rural. Yeah, because, um, you know, 
Love Israel hadn't been living there up until then. So most of his attention on, you know, creating fineries for his, you know, houses and stuff was that that mansion in Seattle. Um, but I guess once he mo- had to move to Arlington, he did, you know, spend a bunch of money on renovating, making, making the barn nice. You know, he kind of lavished it up a little bit so that he could enjoy himself. But you're right, there was, you know... Um, most of the other people that ended up moving up there, there wasn't enough buildings for everyone to have a structure. So it was a lot of, um, yurts can't, you know, canvas yurts, um, up on raised platforms is, is what people were living in. And, um, you know, it's, that sounds good, but not when it's 35 degrees and raining sideways, you know, (laughs) there must've been some miserable. Exactly. My thought where I was like, it sounds great. Like for some of the year, for camping. But this is yeah. Washington we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, conditions weren't the greatest up there, but they made a go of it. Um, <clears throat> they started a gar an annual garlic festival that they held on the property. Um, that was sort of you know I'm picturing kind of Oregon country fair ish. There was like craft booths and different stuff, and it it was actually a really popular attraction like the neighbors they lived at the end like the dead end of a county road is where the ranch was located um so every year all these throngs of people coming to the garlic festival you know would would flood the this this little quiet county road and i guess all the neighbors were some of the neighbors were kind of upset by all the traffic you know seasonal traffic but yeah um but it was, you know, kind of an accepted thing. They also had uh, a real fancy restaurant in sort of the downtown Arlington area, if you can call it that. Um, it was one of the nicer places to eat in the area. So it became pretty popular. Um, and I should say yeah, also and over like you time said, they were running, uh, they ran... Uh, a fruit store but there was a table out front with free food for people they ran a restaurant that was free food for the homeless so i i think other uh, so one article said other christian groups kind of respected them or you know were like hey they're a little weird but it seems as though they're living by their christian values so good um yeah so that's kind of why the community was okay with them like they look weird and they all live together but they're clearly i guess uh, quote-unquote christian minded or are living christian principles so and then another thing that's funny from that time period um because they well there's a lot of stuff involved in this but for one for starters they didn't carry um, identification, like state ID, like a driver's license. So, um, when they, you know, if they got pulled over or whatever, if if a cop asked them for ID, they would, wouldn't have ID. So one of the concessions that the town made was they agreed to, um, issue these like special state IDs to the family members, um, that basically had their, their family name, you know, their virtue name and that they were a member of the family. And that's pretty much it because they didn't have birthdays, you know, so there was no birth date on the ID. Um, so it was a weird thing. I thought that was kind of strange that the, they offered like these substitute state IDs to people. <laughs> that know, is wild. Weird. 
Um, apparently, mm-hmm. two members were kicked out when they were arrested. It didn't say for what, but they gave the police their like former names, their legal names, and they were oh kicked, no, they were kicked out of the Love family because that was against the rules to even admit to this previous name that you had had. Well, those people don't exist anymore. Right? I, yeah, I guess. But man, that must have sucked for those people to be like, I got arrested and now I'm also homeless and don't have my fun cult family. <laughs> so, yeah, things that's when things kind of turned downhill. Oh, uh, in along those lines, though, they, you know, this thing, this whole thing started back in the 60s and early 70s. So by the 90s, you know, they're living up in Arlington. They've they've had a full generation to, like, have kids. So some of the original cult members, you know, had had kids. None of them were, you know, birthed at hospitals. Um, they were able to find a midwife who was willing to, well, she essentially joined the family. Um, but she kept her name, which is weird. She's the only person that I heard of um, who kept her her original name, I forget JD something. Um, but she became the official midwife and unbeknownst to, uh, love Israel. She was secretly keeping a journal of all the births. And so, so she was keeping record of their actual birthdays and stuff because it, someone brought it to her attention that it might they you know if if these people needed whatever services from the from the state they would have to have like a birth certificate and whatnot. So what she was doing was secretly recording this information and then she was recording the births um, officially behind Love Israel's back, um, oh. and so. Yeah, so he found out about this. He found her journal and, like, threw it into the fireplace at one point. And she and a couple of other women, like, retrieved it from the fireplace and immediately started retranscribing, um, often from memory, um, the birth names and birthdays and stuff like that. Um, So that was kind of an unusual, kind of a weird little thing. Um, they also, uh, apparently like to burn books because in that documentary, the 30 minutes that I was able to watch, uh, this lady who worked as a teacher for the homeschooling program was saying at one point he decided to ban all books that had any reference to things that they were against. And this is including wearing glasses, um i'm trying to think of what else she listed so like she had to go through all these books which she said had taken her years to collect because it's she didn't have any money it was like donation only you know getting these books for these children and then she had to go through and burn all of them that referenced any principle from the outside world oh she said marriage so if a character wore glasses if a character got married she had to throw them away And so another person in the documentary said the only books that we had were the Bible. We didn't have any other books. So that's just wild. Yeah. Yeah, man. That is wild. I mean, like you said, cut yourself off from society. That's cult. That's cult 101. Um, Burning books. I hate that. It's not because they don't have TV. They don't have calendars. God, let them have some fucking books. 
I know. Well, you know what, Sydney? The Bible is made up of many books. Uh, yeah, I know. I had to read and study that shit cover to cover because uh, <laughs> I was raised by religious zealots. And it's not that great of a book. Don't add It has me. its moments. It has, <laughs> it has its moments. I have my moments, yeah, too. Most... That doesn't mean I'm overall a good thing. Point taken. Point yeah. taken. <laughs> so where are we now? We're, we're like, 90s-ish? Up yeah, in so 1990 was Arlington. when they started the Garlic Festival. Um, 2003 was when they ran into uh, financial hardships and they were unable yeah. to get their act together to save the ranch um so it was sold yeah. and the family uh ended up buying some property in bothell washington did i say that one right you sure did yeah that's that's real close to seattle um i guess they had also purchased some property in um northeastern washington um kind of near the canadian border kind of near spokane but, um, uh, but yeah, so they had to sell the ranch. Um, the, it, it was sold to the, I don't know what organization, but it became a, basically a Jewish sleepaway camp. Like they, yes. they converted it to, yeah, Jewish sleepaway camp, which it still is to this day. Did they um, leave all the buildings on there? I think they built new stuff. I think they built proper cabins and whatnot. I'm sure the barn, the barn probably remained, but I'm sure all the yurts were (laughs) torn down or whatever. I don't know. I just was kind of picturing like, as they described this cool rambling property with all these craftsman style buildings, like that it would be super neat as a kid to go hang out in that, uh, in that place. Oh, yeah. It seemed like a pretty fun place. I don't know. Um, Real pretty. I've seen photos of the ranch, and it's, you know, it's real uh, pastoral, picturesque, you know. There's a little lake. lake. They call it Butterfly Lake. It was more of a pond. But, but yeah, you know, meadow leading up to, like, a hillside, forested hillside at the back of the property. It was real pretty. I'd like to... I'd like to call it my own. <laughs> <laughs> but so they had to give that up. They moved to Bothell. Um, yeah, they declared bankruptcy, apparently, um, which gave the, that bought them some time legally to decide how to like deal with the finances or whatever, restructuring and, and whatnot. But yeah, eventually they were, they had to leave that, go move to Bothell. And that's 2003. Um, when did Love Israel, aka Paul Erdman, die? That was like two thousand eight or 2016. something. Two thousand sixteen. Oh, sixteen. Oh, yeah, wow. Okay. He passed away at the age of seventy-five. So he lived a long life. Wow. Um, Marilyn, what was her name? Was her name Marilyn from the beginning? I believe Marilyn was still his wife at the time of his death. Um. Uh, it seems like people still believe in his principles. Um, and at a certain point, the kids ended up as the, after the 1984 outcry, the kids ended up going to public school and integrating pretty well into the community. It seems like they were academically successful, which is impressive. 
Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was another issue because they were homeschooling all the kids. But at some point, there was like too many kids to homeschool or whatever. Or th- I don't know exactly how <clears throat> it worked, but they eventually did have to go, um, you know, attend public schools. Yeah. Um, and um, a lot of the kids, did, I don't know, they were kind of a little bit embarrassed <laughs> about being part of the Love family. You know, I'm sure they were, you know, kids are kids. They probably got teased a lot well, for their clothes. Well, his son said it affected his dating life. Like, people would be like, you're going on a date with Love Israel's son. Like, what are you doing? But his son seems to pretty much still kind of be in line with their philosophy. So, I don't know. And that's what I... That's what I heard about a lot of the members that left, even in that schism of 1983, is, um, you know, the people didn't all of a sudden disagree with the philosophy. It was more of a political thing. So they, you know, their hearts hadn't turned from the way they were. They still, you know, oh, I still believe in love, you know, they would say and whatnot, not not necessarily not necessarily referring to the person, but the um, attribute. Uh, the virtue. Yeah. So, um, one of the followers described their way of thinking is that like love is God. So the love that we have for each other, the that love that you're feeling when you're feeling it, that is God. And so I I, I kind of like that. That's a fun hippy dippy way of thinking. Is that your belief in God is confirmed by the fact that you are feeling love. And then to live in God's image is to live your life with love. Sure. That sounds great. Right. Um, (laughs) Oh, I found their spiritual foundations. We are one, which is a very, that's something that happens when you do psychedelics (laughs) is you, you realize like we're all one, everything's connected. It's definitely a belief system that is, um, I don't know, the, the fueled by psychedelics. So we are one love is the answer. And now is the time. And apparently one, because they didn't believe in debt and, um, like, or in getting debt because that involves thinking about the future or the past. So they're very anti-debt. Right. And one of the things that led to the rift was when Love Israel began mortgaging properties to, like, do more things. And they were like, whoa, whoa, uh, whoa. I thought we were against debt. Um, it's And, and that's right. a belief that's in the Bible somewhere, too. Like, usury is a sin. So, like, now all of a sudden this guy is mortgaging stuff like their property, their home. And they're like, wait a minute that we don't, we think that's wrong. And so not only was, was he buying airplanes at this time, I think he bought property in Alaska and Hawaii and he bought an old wooden, it was used in world war two as a minesweeper and he converted it into a fishing boat. Oh yeah. And, And it didn't work very well. No, apparently not. But I mean, all of these, like you mentioned, like he's starting to mortgage things so he can, um, you know, branch out in different ways. But they're all like these poorly thought out cocaine fueled fantasies, Yeah, (laughs) you know. So, yeah, there's I can see why the rift happened. It's like, hey, buddy, slow down. What are you doing? The 80s were a fucking wild time. Cocaine makes you make big financial decisions like buying boats and airplanes and shit, like doing that (laughs) shit with confidence. 
Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Never got caught up in it, thank goodness. But Yeah, I've never know. done coke and it's too late now. Well, the Listen, night is it's young. never too late for anything. I'm just not going to do coke because <coughs> I didn't do it when I was young and dumb and now I'm too smart to do it. So Yeah. Yeah, good good philosophy. Yeah. So um so then I, you know, part of my research I've I listened to there's like a three-part podcast um that I listened to which mainly focused on um the daughter of Daniel Gruner, the richness, the oh. DuPont millionaire guy. So when he left the cult um let's see Oh, no, his wife Judy left first and brought both their daughters, um, I think aged eight and two, I want to say. <clears throat> and the two-year-old was named, well, her, I mean, these kids were born into the Love family, so they only had virtue names. So when they left, the mom was like, well, we have to give you, like, society names now. So I think it was, I don't think it was penitence. Something, something that sounded like Penny. Her okay. name turned into Penny. I don't know if it was, gosh darn it. And then I forget the older daughter's name, but it was the same kind of thing where it just, they changed it into a name that sounded, oh, Posey. Oh, okay, oh, Posey, Posey was her name. And uh, her her uh, virtue name was Composure Israel. Oh. So when they when they left, they, they ch- legally changed her name to Posey. And then they they did a similar thing with the with the other daughter, and but that um, woman it was an interesting Parker Posey. And Parker Posey, Parker Posey can't lose. <laughs> um, synch- synchronized swatches. So this podcast was pretty interesting. Um, she, you know, describing her life after after the fact. Her mom Judy actually developed schizophrenia. At some point along there, oh. um, <clears throat> so after leaving the church, she, no one ever like she didn't display any symptoms of schizophrenia while she was part of the um, organization. But well, afterwards, she tell? developed. Well, because she did, um, she, you can tell like she was real. I think her, I th- hmm. Constance was her name, um, Judy. Uh-huh. Her virtue name was Constance because the other members, um, you know, noticed how she would always sort of, uh, she was even keeled. Like that's how she got her name was because she was so sort of like steady and even nothing like a schizophrenic, you know? So this, the, the symptoms of schizophrenia showed up after leaving and, um, led to a real tumultuous, life for this, you know, her daughters, um, with a mentally ill mother, uh, who had just escaped a cult. So there was, there was a lot of moving around. She remarried and then eventually divorced, uh, just kind of like picked up her two kids and left the marriage that she was in without telling the, actually she took, she took her stepson as well. Um, she married her, she remarried someone who already had a son so when she decided to, they were living in Florida, she decided to move back to, um, I think it was Seattle. <clears throat> she took all the three kids with her and just, you know, flew across the country. The, her, you know, 
husband had to go retrieve his son <laughs> from from her and you know like legally and whatnot Jeez. so it was kind of crazy um but she would still go visit her dad the the um the DuPont millionaire guy um okay. he ended up moving he ended up moving to a place in I think it was northwest Washington as well um but he just he bought like 40 acres and just started building you know his cabin there and whatnot um but they would go visit you know uh, during the summer um the two daughters would would uh go out to visit him and stay with him for a while and I don't know. Sounded like sounded like it was kind of a nice <laughs> summer vacation break from the mental illness mom. Dude, but. I have so much sympathy for kids being raised by parents with severe mental illness. Oh my god, what a nightmare! Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, <clears throat> but and then uh, yeah, I there was some other articles and things of of you know survivor stories from people who had left. And uh, their reintegration into society and whatnot. Um, so, I don't know. None of it sounded like it was, aside from the couple people who died. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I don't know. It, it wasn't the worst cult ever. No, we'll I say. worry about those kids who, if you grew up, okay, you're being homeschooled by this cult. Um, but the cult doesn't believe in calendars or watches or time or anything. Like, I wonder about yeah. then when they re when they integrate into school, their ability to tell time, um, because that, yeah, yeah, yeah I wonder, I mean, you wonder if they, yeah, I guess they, they knew how to tie shoes. I think they wore boots. I'm just thinking the same thing. If, like, if all they ever had was sandals with a buckle, yeah. how are they going to learn to tie knots? Well, a lot of them <laughs> didn't even have shoes. So, yeah, they don't know how to tie yeah. shoes. They don't know how to, um, yeah, yeah. Like just being like the concept of time is something that's really important in, like, the development of teaching a child how to be a person. Um, yeah, so. a constructive, a, a, yeah, a constructive member of society, I guess. Yeah. 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 I'm sure it was, you know, not the smoothest transition, but it wasn't like they couldn't do it. I don't know. I know the guy who made the film, um, it takes a cult, the one that we weren't able to, or you were able to find it or part of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> his dad, like he was born into the cult. So as a, you know, like a 35-year-old man, he went back and made that movie while the thing was still happening. Like he went to the ranch in Arlington oh. um, and, and made that movie at that time. Like he, he had only been out of the cult for a little bit. But, I mean, he was a grown man who was born into it and left it. And eh, he seemed a little weird, the interview I saw with him. Well, he's a um, crap but, filmmaker, but it's probably because he didn't grow up watching films. I mean, yeah. compare it to Tarantino, who all he did was like watch films and memorize films and then learn how to make good films. Oh, right. This yeah, good point. Kid, this guy never watched films growing up. And so uh, it's probably why his movie isn't as strong. 
Yeah, I think you're probably right there. But but yeah, all the all the interviews with um, you know, former members, you know, they all kind of came across as just real calm and measured, you know, um thoughtful, you know, like they were they were kind of I don't know, they're kind of mellow people, but not in like a creepy way, you know what I mean? Just sort of like a thoughtful kind of a way. Well, I find all hippies to be creepy, I'm going to be honest with you, but <laughs> I think they these people were less, in terms of the, the creepy, sinister side of the flower child movement, these people seem to have very little of it. They weren't, yeah. They weren't, yeah, that's what... They didn't make me super uneasy. Not like the no, source from... family made me really uneasy, and I can't exactly explain why. But this, these people the like, witch family, the source family. Oh, the source. Yeah. Oh, okay, but yeah. these people didn't creep me out that much. No, they weren't super creepy. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> all in all, I'd say it's my favorite cult. Yeah. I kind of wish I'd, I'd, uh, I'm, I'm. You know, I regret I missed the bus. I just wasn't around in time to go join it. But I don't know. Maybe it's not too late. I'm there. There's probably still some love family members out there. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of when I always joke about how I'm one bad shift away from joining a cult that doesn't allow alcohol and just working on a farm all day. This is kind of the cult that I picture. Although later, because they moved to that farmland that had um wine grapes on it they did open a winery i forgot the name of it already but they i don't know if it still is making wine but they did open oh uh, right a winery but yeah when i when i talk about how i'm gonna lose my shit and go join a cult this is exactly what i'm talking about so yeah it's peace very peaceful for the most part yeah so um i do have a story a personal story about going and and camping at uh, a a member of the Love family. His name was Gideon Israel, and he had a property in, I think it was Little Rock or Rochester, just outside of Olympia, um, where I spent my teenage years. So uh, the idea is that we're going to add a, a companion podcast to this one and it's going to be available only on Stitcher. Um, so if you are not, Patreon. not Stitcher, sorry, Patreon. Gosh, darn it. I'm terrible at this. So if you want to hear about my experience camping at Rainbow Valley, um, you'll have to join the Patreon in order to hear that. Cause that's going to be a separate, separate recording. Yeah. I think I'm going to call it Rob love raw. Um, it has a certain <laughs> to it. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be Patreon only content. Um, and it's, I'm going to lower the price to like a dollar. So it's like a negligible amount that people can pay. Um, and, uh, they can get Rob Love Raw. And is that a dollar a month? And then they just get whatever Patreon um, content gets released. Yeah, for or is a dollar like, a month, they'll a- have access to the Patreon, all Patreon content. So like past Patreon. Um, okay. Yeah, they'll have access to all of the archives. 
Um, and so okay. that, yeah, it'll include the Rob Love Raws and then, you know, possibly the uh, prank phone calls, the whole shebang. Okay. So are we going to sort of promise at least one per month for oh, Patreon? Yeah. At minimum one per month, but probably okay. more than that. Because um, we do what we want here and what we want to do is record. So that's cr- That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so everyone check out the Patreon to hear <coughs> my personal dealings with the Love family. Woo, whoop, it's exciting. Um, well, have a happy hump day, everyone. Yeah, have a happy hump day. Thanks for tuning in. All right, bye, guys. <laughs>